Hi everyone, Brandon here with a quick word before the podcast. Glass Tire is a nonprofit publication that exists thanks to the support of readers and listeners like you. We know times are tough right now, but if you're able, we could really use your help. By visiting glasstire.com donate, you can make a one-time gift or become a monthly sustaining donor to our publication. All of the money we get goes right back into our coverage of Texas and its artists. One more time, that's glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks for listening, and here's today's podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I'm Brandon Zeck. I'm Christina Reese. And this week, well, this week we'll kind of introduce the topic with two theses around it. So, you know, Mm -hmm. we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic still. Uh, It's the end of September 2020 when we're recording this podcast. But this is a trend uh, that has started even before the coronavirus pandemic and there have been different ways since the pandemic began that this is kind of, I feel like it's uh, it's sped up a little bit and the reaction to it is sped up just because we can't go anywhere and we can't interact with things in person now like we could before. Right. I'm talking about virtual reality, augmented reality, and mixed reality and how art engages with those either as a a vehicle for delivery of the artwork. So basically it's an artwork that's a virtual reality artwork or the other side of it is those mediums are delivery for artworks that were made in another medium. So it's just kind of the conduit between the artwork and you, right? Maybe it's you're seeing a virtual reality gallery where the paintings are quote unquote installed in a space or if the artwork is popping up in your home like in an augmented reality app. But we're going to talk about how those two uses of the technology differ, how it differs when it's used as a part of the artwork and contrastingly when it's used as a delivery method of the artwork. And also just part of the thesis is grounding the idea that this technology is spectacularly new still. It, it The egg <laughs> hasn't even hatched. We are in the, not even the fledgling, we're in the nascent stage of this as as a product of our society, much less the art world. Yeah, it's like it's like the Gutenberg Press, but without yet the Gutenberg Bible to give it access. Somebody else said that, some developer, a VR developer, but it's absolutely true. This stuff is still so new that everyone has very, very different ideas of where it could go or what its potential is and what its dangers are for that matter in terms of like people always being watchful for what new technologies can do (laughs) for good and for evil. Um, But a good example, I mean, a couple of good examples, very concrete examples of the two different thesis uh, points that you were talking about is, for instance, just in the last couple of days, I went into Saul Lowitt's studio and I looked around at his studio and... um, and you can point on different to different you know bookshelves and uh, desks, and it gives you information about what that is. And that's that's a that's a vehicle for getting to something that already exists. And then also last night and this morning, I had uh, a puffin inside my house. Um, <laughs> he just kind of uh, he was sweet actually, and he was made by Oliver Eliasson. 
And um, that's artwork that is made to be experienced through virtual reality, or in this case, augmented reality, much more like Pokemon Go. By the way, you liked Pokemon Go, didn't you? You know, I... I did. I, I wrote an article back. It feels so long ago now. Back when Pokemon Go was yeah was really popular about how the art world actually could uh, exploit Pokemon Go and exploit all of the the hype around it and the technology around it. We'll link to that in the uh, related reading below this podcast if you go to Glass Tires website. But I I did, and you know that was. I feel like that was a lot of people's first introduction with virtual augmented mixed reality um you know we'll we'll probably end up accidentally using these terms interchangeably uh of course virtual reality is like what you think of as virtual reality where you put on the headset and you're completely in another world augmented reality is much more like augmented reality is pokemon go so it's where elements of these digitized elements show up in your real world settings and then mixed reality is uh, kind of a mix of both of them it's a little more interactive where the augmented reality aspect is actually more interactive with your real life environment the distinctions again because this is so new are kind of i feel like changing an arbitrary and we'll probably accidentally refer to something as the wrong reality <laughs> in <laughs> this uh, so just bear with us and keep that in mind but we'll try our best but Pokemon Go was really, I think, the first kind of big public introduction to augmented reality. And that's because for a while, things like the Google Cardboard device, which was Mm -hmm. a cheap way of having a virtual reality headset that was just kind of a a cardboard device you could slip your phone into with some lenses that gave it a virtual reality aspect. I remember when those were being mailed out to people, when they were kind of a big deal. Like, I was actually working at Glass Tire, and we got one in the mail or something, I think possibly from the New York Times. And yeah, and it was like this big deal where you could download the app or the the video where you're basically like underwater, right? And you move your phone and you can't move physically throughout the space, but you can look around. It's a 360 degree video animation, right? That's, That's kind of the easiest way to describe it. Yeah, and what I remember, I did it too. I was with my brother, uh, Mike, uh, uh, in Fort Worth that day, and I think they had gotten the New York Times thing in the mail. And I, it was swimming with sharks, wasn't it? I remember being underwater, yeah. and there were a lot of sharks. And it was really startling. I mean, I think I'm really susceptible to this kind of thing. I'm very susceptible to any sort of motion. Motion really works for me. And I really felt, I really felt it, despite how incredibly simple and elementary it was for virtual reality and for a headset i was quite Mm -hmm. taken in and i gotta say i mean the emotional impact even of having a puffin inside my house last night and this morning was (laughs) start it was startling to me it's startling and it was a kind of a little point of strange joy because you know how i am about animals anyway but Mm -hmm. um i think the potential of this and the way artists can use it is so incredibly varied my sense of all of this and what I think I'm most interested in, as usual, is kind of the psychological and sociological impact of how these things work and just how much artists are the ones who are most likely to be able to kind of color outside the lines to really do something that isn't 
of the norm or isn't expected. Mm -hmm. You know, th these are not necessarily going to be marketing or commercial enterprises for artists, and they're still at the beginning stages as well. And there is a difference between an artist who normally works heavily in technology uh, tackling this and trying to get into virtual and augmented reality and artists who really don't work so much digitally but want to try it out. I like the difference between somebody like Olafur Eliasson or Natalie Jurberg, who does a lot of narrative, when they use virtual or augmented reality, it's different from somebody like, we were both reading about, you know, and we didn't see it. I didn't see it. I didn't see Jordan Wolfson's real violence at the from the Whitney Biennial. Yeah, me neither. And that's a whole different thing. That's an artist who's almost like, whatever you think of Jordan Wolfson, and I think we probably all have weird opinions about him, but it's almost like if Harmony Kareen got hold of it. It's the same thing. It's like... Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's he he wanted so much to bring a, just purely a visceral experience to it but here's the deal you know artists aren't afraid to go to uncomfortable places and we need that we need that in our world as with what has happened with the internet and social media, to me, people just kind of silo themselves into the places and the spaces online where they feel most comfortable. They don't necessarily seek out the unsettling, unhappy experiences. They go to where they can be, you know, confirmed and validated. So it's hard for me to, I still think the art version of virtual reality and augmented reality is going to be very, very niche. I don't think people are going to flock to it unless it's real feel-good stuff. Well, I think, Christina, one of the reasons that that might be true is that virtual reality stuff, it misses the big, like, boom impact when it's in a gallery or when it's in an exhibition, right? Even if you have screens up that, like, show you what the person wearing the headset is seeing, I mean, <laughs> virtual reality stuff looks kind of stupid when you walk into a gallery or a museum and it's and it's a virtual reality piece because it's an empty room, maybe with like a, a like a fishing pole hanging the, the headset down, right? So that you have a controlled area that you can walk around that has no obstacles, so you can move around in this virtual space. And it's it's nothing else. It's just a headset. There's no Instagrammable quality to it. You uh -uh. kind of look stupid while you're doing it. So if you see someone else do it, that could kind of be a deterrent. Also, you're like, oh, that's a little weird. Like, and not to mention nowadays, if you're using like some virtual reality pieces have like little trigger hands so that you can pick things up and interact with things and grab things in the world. There's a huge touch and sanitary element with these things because you're touching them and you're putting them on your face. And I mean, mm -hmm. museums had to deal with that. Like there was a there was a story about the Jordan Wolfson piece that was in the Whitney Biennial. I believe it was 2017 that you were talking about. And one of the stories mentioned the fact that museum workers were just running around to each headset trying to sanitize it as quick as they could. And mm -hmm. that's only going to be a problem that continues, I think, to make it even more inaccessible or make people even less inclined to engage with it. Like the benefit is being able to experience it, but there's no way to show anyone that you can experience it. You can't take a photo of the headset when you're inside of it, you know? Right. I, and I can't, like I, I looked and looked for just even a single still image of real violence online and I can't find one. So I don't even really know what it looks like, but that's the thing, Brandon is people won't even bother going into galleries or museums if they can stay at home and and access the art via their own stuff at home, whether it's a headset or contact lenses or whatever it is we're going to end up in. 
so I think that, you know, it's a, I don't mean to be the old man telling the kids to get off the lawn, but I mean, I do think that this is going to contribute uh, to this increasing sense that we're all kind of siloed. Now, while we're dealing with coronavirus and developers are rushing, rushing to get products out there to deal with it, as we know with digital technology and the digital revolution, you know, the things that push it forward most quickly mm-hmm. are the military, education, medicine, and pornography. Um, I think art will lag to some degree, but it will also there will also be these really interesting little niche kind of areas where artists can kind of take hold and turn it into their own, which makes me feel like the art that happens in virtual reality or augmented reality really won't look or feel like anything else that's being done for these platforms. It'll be something completely different. And also this idea, all these developers, these VR developers keep saying, and of course these are engineers who live in Silicon Valley, they're saying that it's going to help people feel more connected. Well, we know what social media has done, has wrought. Well, that's the classic line, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and they're all while they're also keeping their children away from all of this technology, by the way. But they're saying that that virtual reality will allow people to connect more fully and more viscerally with one another because it's a full body experience. That it will somehow. Uh, engender more empathy, more feelings of connection. Well, what we're going to be dealing with there, no, no matter what, is this kind of the uncanny valley, which you and I have talked about before many mm-hmm. times. And it's like, well, okay, so you can be sitting in a room with your friend, so you know, quote unquote, but what is that like? And what we do in our brains is we stitch together and make up for uncanniness if we need to, if that's what feels right. we Like that puffin, I was pretty thrilled with that little dumb puffin in my room. I thought, I was like, I was really <laughs> taken with him. It's really mm-hmm. ridiculous, but it was an emotional, I had an emotional response to him. And people will allow technology to fill in these these holes and these gaps in their perception in mm-hmm. order to have the experience that they need to have. We know that gamers do it all the time. In talking about how fledgling the technology is also in like even the piece that you're talking about the Olafar Eliasson piece that you can actually it's it's free you can see it via the acute art app so if you go to the app store ios or uh, i believe on google play also you can get the app and then you have these augmented reality art experiences in your house the app's free they have a few like things that you can buy within it but you know even Oliver Eliasson, who has someone working for him and doing programming for him and is maybe arguably one of the best people to kind of step into this realm of art making, in one of the stories about acute art, he said, quote, the level was way beyond what I would normally have access to. And, you know, he's someone who is a blue chip mega artist at this point who has backing funds who who can have access to money to really do something if he really wants to or has a desire to so for him to say that he wouldn't have really known how to go about it or it would have been challenging for him to go about it unless this art tech startup helped him put a little animal in your space christina that's that's kind of baffling because the other side of this is that the people who are using VR, AR, etc. for art making rather than art presenting, that's kind of what this whole conversation so far has been about, art making using the technologies. Mm-hmm. Those people are either kind of the upper echelon of the art world, like Olafar Eliasson, 
cause is in the acute art app also, or it's people who are like working with tech startups and it's kind of the lower tier, maybe a little scrappier version and making like eight bit worlds where you can just look around. You're not walking around, but you, you know, you wear a a vibrating chest piece to like make you feel more part of the world and you sit and kind of have this eight bit tour that almost looks like you're inside of a video game. Those are the two extremes of using this technology that I've seen because the, the kind of lower end of it and the tech art startup end of it, um, that don't have as much funding and aren't working with as big names of acute art are popping up at places like the satellite art show when it happens in Miami or when it happened in Austin last year, or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, these, these other kind of smaller scrappier places where the audience may be a little more receptive and have, and actually take eight minutes and sit and watch this thing happen. It's interesting because two days ago, you and I were talking about this and about how, how this was going to be our topic. And I said to you, <laughs> do you remember doing the Laurie Anderson moonwalk uh, thing at the, at the moon anniversary show at the Moody center? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it was probably at the end of last year or the beginning of this year. And you actually struggled to remember it. Here's what I remember. Yeah. We, we went in and they, they gave us the instructions and I did it for a little while. I actually enjoyed it again. That was a real motion thing. Cause it kind of really did feel like you were, you know, that kind of underwater anti-gravity thing was happening, but I, mm-hmm. I got a little bit bored and then I took my headset off and then I just watched you for a while <laughs> and you spent a lot more time <laughs> in it than I did, but you also didn't really remember it. Like I had to jog your memory and it, to me, what was so yeah. strange about that is it's like, you know, Brandon, as much as you love art, that just didn't really stick with you. Um, yeah. I, I, it doesn't seem like it was an experience that stuck with you. So like what virtual or augmented reality art have you thus far experienced that sticks with you? One thing that does really kind of stick with me is there was a piece by the Institute for New Feeling at Ballroom Marfa. Um, yeah. This was a couple years ago at this point, and it was it was one of those pieces, you know, where the room was completely empty. You had, like, two little trigger hands. You wore a headset, and you walked around and interacted. And it was like this warehouse, and you if you picked up a product, in theory, you would be dropped, like, into a world of the product. And I think probably one of the reasons that it stuck with me is it felt a little more active than that Laurie Anderson piece. Mm -hmm. I think artists who use it can get stuck in what the VR, what the technology is doing, right? Like that piece had a little more of a built-in narrative. Like there was a little more of a, of a mission. It's like you picked up this thing and you were transported into a different part of that world. And it was almost, it was almost video game like, and I still can't reconcile with myself if that is a good direction or a bad direction for this stuff to Mm -hmm. go. But I think Mm -hmm. the fact that I had to interact with it more purposefully made it a little more memorable of an experience. Hmm. Again, for somebody who has so many doubts about where the internet is taking us and where the digital revolution is taking us, I am actually quite excited about virtual reality and art because I do think that artists will continue to push the boundaries of what it can be. And I think about, I was thinking about, um, just to kind of, as an aside, I was thinking about the way David Foster Wallace talked about David Lynch as a filmmaker and how Mm. by being 100% himself, he produces things that don't look and feel like anything else. 
And I still th- and I think of David Lynch as more as as very much as much a visual artist as he is a filmmaker. And I do think that our artists, a lot of our artists, are capable of doing something that we have not imagined yet. And so I can do something as pedestrian as be like, okay, so who are my favorite kind of you know, artists who use technology primarily, it's like, okay, so you know how I feel about Ed Atkins, right? But all I'm thinking is like, well, what would it be like to be plunged immersively into one of his worlds? Because his stuff really gets me off. I absolutely love it. I don't know that I would want to be in one of his worlds, like actually immersed (laughs) in one of his worlds. That would be a pretty strange and uncomfortable and pretty cold place. But I don't think that that's what he would do. He's so far ahead of me in terms of what he's capable of doing that I think... And he may not be interested at all in virtual reality. Who knows? I just don't think that we can predict these things. And I do think that as long as people are tied to just using their phones, and that's primarily what's happening right now, maybe their computer screens if they have laptops, maybe tablets if they use tablets, it's just in and of itself, it's just very limiting. One of the things we know is going to happen at some point is there will be And I'm afraid it's going to be social media. I'm afraid what's going to happen is that people will start to flock to VR and, and more, more of that kind of thing, because this is how they want to interact with people they already know. That's going to be the um, Trojan horse for getting this technology Mm -hmm. into more and more people's hands. And when that happens, it will, it's almost like the path has already been decided When we interact with people on Instagram and Facebook, we're doing it the way Instagram and Facebook want us to do it. Yeah. And then we stop using our imaginations about what else social media could be and how, what it could look like. So I do fear that there will be almost, there will almost be like, um, an aborted attempt to really explore all of the parameters or all of the horizons of what VR can be because people will just get very addicted to one way of doing it or maybe two to three ways of doing it, but not much more. And I really am hoping that it's artists who are the ones who are going to push past that. Christina, around that, so one of the questions that I have is that when virtual reality is going to kind of surpass just being mass market videos, right? Or by mass market, I don't necessarily mean just like a film released in a theater, but just when will it get past the just being a video element and actually turn into like where it's a world that encompasses you and kind of what will that tipping point be? Because one of the things right now is that people don't have VR headsets and that's not a thing that they're going to spend money on. Like I I think because this technology is so new and because people don't have a reason unless they have a very kind of specialized thing that they're into that they're using it for, people aren't going to have a VR headset laying around and they're not going to engage with the technology in the way that it's meant to be engaged with, right? Like some of these apps and videos and things, you can just view them as 3D videos on your phone screen if you don't have a headset. So they're kind of bending the technology back so that it's more accessible, which is good. But at the same time, then it's just a 3D video, right? If you can still see the rest of your apartment or your house as you're just moving your phone around. It's it's not the effect that they're actually going for. So how much is the experience of the heart of this technology being undercut by the fact that we just simply don't have access to 
engage with it the way that we need to and probably won't for a very long time. I mean, I I don't know if I've just gone over to anyone's house and seen a VR headset laying on their bedside table or on their coffee table. And it's probably call me on this whenever it does happen and say that I'm wrong, but it's probably going to be years before that's a normal occurrence to just have around your house. But listen, the iPhone came out in 2007. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't have one. And now everyone has one. And things are moving faster. Things are always moving faster. Digital adaptation is working more quickly. It speeds itself up. It's the craziest kind of phenomenon. I think Mm -hmm. if the right sort of uses for VR kick in and there's a reason for people to get the headsets, they'll get them. They'll cost less than $200. And I would guess that if there are a couple of apps that come out that people are very attracted to, and again, it might be some kind of social media thing. It could even be something as unimaginative as Instagram or Snapchat deciding that in order to maximize your experience, you need a headset. I think people will get headsets. I mean, even just in the, in the course of researching this, I thought, oh, you know what? <laughs> I want a headset. (laughs) I thought about buying an Oculus Rift and I don't even play games. You know, it's like, I just want to experience this stuff. And I, and I think Mm -hmm. it'll happen a lot more quickly than you think. As long as something happens that people want access to and more and more people, it's like Facebook. It's all these things. It's this critical mass that sort of suddenly happens that tipping point. And it could be a lot, a lot sooner than we think because we're not using our imaginations and we don't know what they're up to in Silicon Valley and what they're about to roll out. And you're right with Corona and all of us sitting at home, this, this whole process is being sped up even more because these developers are imagining a world where everyone is going to, everyone who can will work Mm -hmm. from home. Everyone who can will stay at home to be entertained. Everyone who can will stay at home even to socialize with their friends. That's already happening. Our social muscle gets all atrophied. And then that just leads to, to more kind of weird isolation and trying to use the internet to fill in the gaps of our loneliness or our isolation. And I could see this VR thing really, really taking off simply for that reason. I could also see the opposite thing happening, which is like, when a vaccine comes out and everyone feels safe to go out in the world again, that they will, they will leave their computers behind for like <laughs> three years. They will just be out in the world and socializing with people they know. They won't want real life, in real life experiences and not online ones. But we yeah. are creatures of addiction and dopamine and endorphins and the internet, you know, and the people behind how we use the internet have figured this stuff out. They have got us down cold. They know how to get us hooked in and they know how to keep us and you know i'm sure i'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are like i would never get addicted to a virtual reality sort of environment it's like yes you will yeah you will uh of course you will because this stuff in a way has outstripped evolution it has outstripped our brain's ability to deal with it i mean we're all kind of in that boat at this point so on the flip side of this if you're excited about artists using virtual reality as a medium for their work. And once it comes down to it, I probably, I mean, I can admit, I'm excited to see what that future is going to hold also, especially as more people learn how to use it and can engage with more people that know how to program it. And once that really ramps up, Mm -hmm. but how have you felt so far? And what do you think about the future of 
virtual reality being a means to see art. It not being the art itself, but having an augmented reality or a virtual reality experience of, quote, going to a gallery, right? One example of this that's happening right now that you can actually watch is Blue Star Contemporary. They have a a show that's up of a bunch of San Antonio artists that's also work you can buy called Red Dot. And they have a virtual experience and it's a bunch of kind of smaller galleries you know they're smaller because you have to physically walk around the space so you know if it were a 3000 square foot building it would be hard to walk through that entire show versus maybe a 200 or 100 square foot room but they have an experience right now where you can download an app and walk through and see these paintings drawings photographs as if you were seeing the show in person, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that I think a few viewing rooms have really tried to capitalize on recently. It's something that I think no one really put a lot of effort into before the last six months happened. And now everyone is thinking about what this would be like or what it would be like to do this for every show. Or is it a documentation of each show that kind of lives on a lot better than photographs? Or how is this experience? Because, you know, it's even the type of thing where you can tap on the artwork and see the label information and click through and buy it immediately if you want. And it has all of the unlimited technologies that being in a digital environment offers, right? It's just like being on a web page. You can put your credit card info in, you can buy something, you can find out more information, you can follow the artist, you could link to their website, you can do any of these things which are a lot easier to do online than to get someone to follow through in person. But Christina, of course, it goes directly against the thing that you and I always talk about. And the thing that many of our readers, whether they're artists, people who work in nonprofits, or just people who like to go see art, tell us about, which is the great benefit of being able to see art live and in person. You're not going to be too surprised to hear me say this, although there's, I have two different kind of slightly differing thoughts. One is, you know, this art wasn't made to be experienced this way. This art was made to be experienced in person, physically, in a space, by people, by an individual or by groups of people. And so it's a degraded experience almost no matter what. I tend to feel like, right, this second, because it's still so new, what happens for me when I when I engage with this kind of technology is the novelty of it is so distracting that I'm paying much more attention to kind of the physical sensation of the technology itself than the artwork. Hmm. So to me right now, it kind of supersedes the work. It's like the technology becomes kind of the bully in the room. It be, and it's it's not so good for the art. It's almost just, it's, it's just, you know, it's got a weird flattening effect. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I've w- done virtual walkthroughs of museums during all this COVID stuff. And I've been really grateful f- to be able to visit museums and to kind of walk through those spaces it's it's not a replacement but it's not nothing and I don't I still I don't think that artists who make paintings and make photographs think that this is the ideal way to do things but if it's if it kind of you know if it kind of bridges the gap or makes up for some distance okay that's fine it's interesting technology it creates better access I mean you know the internet isn't all evil we and we get more used to things as we use them. I mean, you know, it's like for me, it's still novel. And so going through Solowitz Studio, it's like it's fine, but I'd rather be in the studio. I want to smell it and I want to 
feel the air and I want to hear what, you know, is coming in from the windows outside. I, it's just, it's too dead to me in a way, but it, that may not be true this time next year. I don't know. Well, what's your reconciliation between, so I, I think you kind of hit on two different things, right? Like there's the, there's the virtual reality tours where the technology supersedes that experience for you, right? And that's very much like the ones where you have to walk around your apartment or you have to click through or you have to do that. But then we've also had the tours, the tours that we've been publishing on Glass Tire, the video tours, or I'm thinking also of, there was a um, right before lockdown, I believe it was like the beginning of March, there was a one take video tour published of the Hermitage in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, mm-hmm. it was just, it was shot on like an iPhone. It was a one take tour, but it's like five and a half hours long. And <laughs> that's, that's the kind of thing where I could almost as fun as it is to do these virtual tours and things like that. And, you know, I was, I was doing the Google art project, those like click through tours of museums back before, you know, the big conversation around virtual reality or interactive AR tours or anything like that even popped up. Right. Because that was, that was kind of some of the beginning of this technology when Google went in and did those 360 videos and photographs that was like, wow, you can see this museum without having to go there when, when that was a Mm -hmm. big deal. Christina, I don't know if you Mm -hmm. did those experiences when that happened, but it, I think it rippled quite a bit that like this, this was the super cool thing that you could do and not even have to travel. Well, I mean, (laughs) yeah, but I, I think that yes. And I think it's useful for that. And it takes, it's certainly, it does take at least five and a half hours to walk through that museum anyway. But, um, here's the thing. Again, I think people will get more used to it. But again, the way people use the internet is so (laughs) navel-gazing. I have this really nihilistic view, I think, of human nature. I think that people ultimately will do what they've already done, which is I'm, you know, people will say, "I, I need to customize this internet experience for my needs and my desires. And so they will, I mean, I, what I also see is the possibility that artists will be co-opted into being essentially sort of um, production teams for people to ask for customized experiences. They, they want to create a world that they want. Mm-hmm. And that's where they're going to live, you know? And it will actually just be humanity. The part of humanity who can afford it will be sort of living with their contact lenses or their Google Glass or their your Oculus Rift and they'll be just living in whatever worlds they've customized for themselves and not going outside of it. Mm-hmm. I fear that there aren't enough people who are truly intellectually curious enough to go to the Hermitage to really, but there will be, of course there will be. I mean, this is just me losing faith in humanity. I don't need to do that. <laughs> but I, but I do, I, I do have a, a pretty dystopian view of where all this could end up. And I think that for the developers who are saying this is going to engender more empathy, I don't know what, who they're hanging out with, but I just, I don't think that that's, that that's how this technology is being used thus far. And I don't know that it will be used that way. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, gosh, I mean, we've all been stuck at home and we are I I do wonder how many people have gone beyond their normal kind of internet searches and their internet rabbit holes because they have gotten bored and they have felt isolated and they do want to see or do something else. And of course there are countless stories on in every single journal 
that appears online. They're like, here are some places you can go. Here are some things you can see that you haven't seen. Here are some things that you can experience that you may not have thought about. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just this deluge of information of like, go on this camping trip, go see this mountain, go climb this mountain, go dive this ocean. And I don't know how much of that you've done. I've done very little of it, um, but that might just be me. But I don't, I mean, what do you think of the best case scenario? The perfect scenario is that artists are able to be paid for this work in a way that allows them to be able to post it online so that people can enjoy it and it doesn't have to be bought with a headset, with an Oculus Rift sold by Gagosian for $300,000. That's the that's the dream, right? That these pieces, that if they're developed by artists, that they'll cost a lot to develop. So then the artist or the gallery or whoever fronted that money will have to sell it accordingly or addition it accordingly. So if there's some way to offset that experience, then making it accessible to a number of people is the way that this really should go. I'm realizing that's a, well, that's a jumbled answer. Or the thing is, if people would be willing, I don't know if they would at this point. And even so, it might be kind of exclusively an art interested in or, or an already art knowledgeable audience that b- would be willing to pay like a museum admission ticket to view the piece by Jordan Wolfson, right? Would you pay $20 to be able to view that piece and you quote, quote, buy it? Not 20, not 20, but I would pay, I would pay $2 for it. And here's the thing. I mean, the, the price of entry doesn't actually have to be very high before profits start to roll in, but I do fear kind of what you're saying, or if you're even saying this, but I mean, there's the idea that people will put a tremendous amount of work into, into these pieces, into this artwork, but there will be no, there, it's like video art. There won't be any money coming in unless the galleries figure out a structure for that. Um, but I'm with, I mean, I'm with the, the kind of the internet philosophers who say that things just get a lot better when you pay for content. Um, yeah. The quality goes up. People pay for what's good. Uh, I realize that late stage capitalism, you know, would would probably raise some questions around that statement. But um, I think that the artists are going to need to get paid. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And um, maybe it'll be kind of like the acute art thing where the, the app is free and then you get in there and then you can pay for upgrades or you can pay for extras. And we know that video games work that way. A whole lot of stuff works that way, mm-hmm. but, um, I wouldn't want the, you know, the exploitation model to sort of t- take hold and move in. I mean, we've seen what's happened to a lot of industries when people's creative endeavors are no longer paid for because people demand to have it for free. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, what I think is that the most interesting stuff won't really happen by committee it won't happen with these big production teams like acute art it will be individuals or maybe one or two individuals you know working together privately on some really really surprising stuff and a lot of apps that come out um happen with just that kind of process you know whether or not uh, you know itunes allows it on its app store is kind of another question Mm -hmm. and i realize oliver eliason with all of his resources is saying that he can do stuff through acute art that he couldn't do on his own. Well, sure, that's true, but, I mean, he's also hasn't done anything groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. There's almost always a watering down of intention. The bigger the team gets, it's pretty rare that an impulse stays pure when you keep adding more and more and more people to it. Yeah. Um, so I, I, think, I think individuals are going to be the pioneers of the most interesting stuff that happens. 
Yeah. And it's worth saying this may be a little bit of a late shout out, but one of the places that I've seen probably at least half of the VR or augmented reality art, mostly, mostly VR is at a place in Austin called the museum of human achievement, which, you know, is not, (laughs) they're not a big tech company. They're not, they don't have millions of dollars into development, but they're showing VR work that has been developed by some of these artists who are just doing it because they can, or they're working with programmers or they've learned the technology themselves. And, that kind of underground community, you still have to have the headset to be able to properly experience it. But I I think something like that could emerge and kind of really become a way that this work moves forwards as a part of the conversation. You know, and I think one of the things that we're doing here, because we deal with visual art and Glass Tire deals with visual art, you know, what we're not talking a whole lot about is other creative people who are making things that could be experienced in virtual reality or augmented reality in ways that are absolutely stunning. And I think theater, dance, music, I think all of these could be incredibly well served by virtual reality, especially if there is some sort of payment structure for it. Um, And I think movies, obviously. I mean, I think filmmakers... Uh, they already think it this way. They already think and, and make things for three dimensions. They just have to, you know, show it on a flat screen. But I think some filmmakers are going to make some incredible breakthroughs. And, and, I, and I would love to see artists working with musicians and performers and filmmakers in collaboration because I think that that could push things forward more quickly. And I think that the level of engagement that people would feel would be really, really spectacular. I mean, to think that you could have uh, your favorite music performer playing your favorite songs in your own living room is pretty amazing Mm -hmm. and people will pay for that they just will because this art is too important it's just we need it we need it and um people are willing to pay for things they need yeah well i just i just i want to i want to point out and this number keeps getting thrown around right now um in in the media but you know this idea that 92 percent of our communication is nonverbal. And that therefore, when we're all sitting alone in our homes and we're not dealing with human beings in real life, we're missing so much. And the fact that virtual reality developers are saying that somehow virtual reality is going to make up for this difference. Mm -hmm. That to me is a huge question. And we need to, I think we need to be wary, but I think we can be hopeful. And I like the idea that if, uh, you know, if my mom wanted to adopt a puffin and have it in her house... (laughs) to wake up to that that would be an option for her. I like it. I don't see any downside to that, frankly. Um, but we'll see. No, there's no, there's no reason to have a downside to it because if it's fun and, you know, I, I have to admit using a cute arts app, like I, I stayed on it for a lot longer than I thought I would. And yeah. it was interesting and figuring out how it worked. Like, I was doing it because we were doing this podcast, but at the same time, I could see giving that to, you know, to a 10 year old and them just spending the entire day on it and having a blast. Like it's, it, it truly is back to the point that Christina, your point that the iPhone came out 13 years ago. It's remarkable that it can look that realistic and, you know, we'll include a few pictures on glass tire. If you look at the uh, post for this podcast, but I mean, each one has its own shadow, has its own lighting. Like it, it looks like it's in the space. You could convince someone that you have a cause statue in the corner of your home if you really tried hard enough. <laughs> and who doesn't want that? 
And we can surprise everyone by showing a picture of the cause in, in my kitchen. People are like, why did she go for that? That's interesting. Um, you know, I think you're right. And I, I would like to subscribe to a slightly more utopian idea. Of, and I love the idea of having a 10-year-old that you can you can download the Acute Art app and show them art through that and get them turned on to art that way. I hope so. I hope that this is all part of a much brighter future. Um, maybe these kind of augmented and virtual realities will actually be a solution to some of the problems that social media has thrown up. I do not know, but yeah, those of you listening, download that app. It's free and you can look at a lot of kind of interesting things. It might be a good introduction for you to um, understand kind of at least what augmented reality, um, how it works with art. And there are some good artists on there. Yeah, there are. And if you made it this far in the podcast, thank you for listening. If you, uh, like art dirt and you enjoy listening to Christina myself and sometimes other people talk, uh, consider subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts, uh, and also give us a rating if you like it. All right, everybody. So that is it for this week. We will be back in another couple of weeks. Uh, we, uh, put these out every two weeks. So in the meantime, stay safe. And, uh, if you can, um, go see some art. Thanks everyone. See some art. <laughs> <laughs>